Friends, good morning. The Lord be with you and also with you. My name is Ryan Bonfilio. I'm one of the ministers here at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, and this is our summer Sunday school series. And I'm delighted that you all are with us this morning, whether this is your first time dropping into Sunday school or whether you've been here for all of the previous weeks of this series. We're really glad to have you uh, this morning. Our summer series, as the slide says, is called Great Figures of the Old Testament. And in this nine-week series this summer, we're focusing on some of the most prominent figures that we encounter in the Old Testament, particularly in those first five books of the Old Testament that are known as the Pentateuch. And um, I want to give you a very, like a one-minute recap of where we've been so far. But as I was putting that together, I realized that I've done a bad job of marketing this series because the titles of my classes are just things like Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. They're not very creative. So I'm going to show you where we've been, but I've I've borrowed or stolen titles uh, from popular works of film and literature to, to, to kind of better to, to punch up the marketing for this class. So uh, in the first week, we looked at Adam and Eve. That was my rather mundane title. But I was thinking, what other titles might work for this? So of course, the obvious one you think of is Milton's Paradise Lost, an apt title for the drama of this series. Another one uh, from a great Russian author, Dostoevsky, I thought Crime and Punishment might also work as a fitting title for what this week was all about. So that was week one, Adam and Eve. Week two, Cain, Abel, and the Sons of Noah. This was, I had a little bit harder time with this one, but I thought of the, uh, the Steinbeck uh, novel, East of Eden, because this really illustrates what life was like east of Eden or outside of the garden. The other one that I thought of was Pride and Prejudice from Jane Austen, uh, that maybe we can think of the pride of Cain, or maybe, maybe even the prejudice that God had toward Abel's sacrifice as opposed to Cain's. Last week, we looked at Abraham and Sarah, and here I had to take some liberties with titles. So adjusting uh, very slightly the title of a Dickens classic, I want to call this the tale of, or sorry, the old couple, I'm going to slide ahead, the odd couple borrowing from a 1965 Neil Simon uh, play, actually Broadway play that became an early 70s TV series that some of you might have known. I know all of you are way too young to have known of a 70s TV series, but nevertheless, ask your parents and they'll know of it. Uh, The Odd Couple. The other one I thought might work is something like The Godfather. Now, not only is The Godfather one of my kind of classic favorite uh, TV films, but I can imagine a play on Abraham's name as Exalted Father, Godfather, something like that. I can also imagine that scene in Genesis 12 where God comes and and offers Abraham the promise of a great nation, of God saying something like, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse, or something like that. No, I don't think of God typically as Don uh, Vito Corleone, but, you know, you can take some liberties. And then finally, uh, this week, we turn to the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And this is the one I had to take some liberty with. Uh, I had to adjust the title of a classic Dickens novel. A Tale of Two Siblings, not Cities. Uh, we're really going to be talking about Ishmael and Isaac here in this case. Or another one, it might seem odd at first, but Moby Dick. Does anyone remember the first line of Moby Dick? Call me Ishmael. Now, it's not really a story that relates directly to the biblical story of, of Hagar and Ishmael, although there are some resonances. But I thought because of that first line, uh, this might work. Anyway, we're going to try to uh, punch up the marketing of this series for the future. Uh, the goal of each of these weeks, if you've been with us, is to re-familiarize ourselves with the basic contours of these stories. I think so often in this series, even I'm discovering this, that, that these stories are way more complicated 
than we often think they are. There's a lot of more texture to these characters. These characters come off much more like you and me than they do like perfect saints of faith. And so there's a lot to discover in these stories, and this is going to be especially true of today. Um, if you've missed earlier lessons, there's a couple ways you can catch up. If you're interested, you can go to our website uh, at learn slash curriculum, and you can actually click to listen to all of the previous lectures if you want to either uh, catch one you've missed or, or watch a rerun late at night. You also can go to iTunes and subscribe to our First Prez podcast, and there, along with the various sermons that we have, you'll find the audio versions of these lectures as well. You can kind of get a taste of what else I listen to up here. This is a screenshot from my computer. Um, it's an odd mixture of car talk and theology as I drive uh, for the most part. So that's how you can catch up. But in either case, all of these lessons stand on their own. And so if you are here with us for the first time or have missed previous lessons, you won't be left out. So with that said, uh, let's begin today's lesson uh, you know that my practice is to start with a quiz. I'm actually going to put that on hold just for one week. It's going to be a one-week reprieve from the quiz. And I'm going to do this in part because we have some unfinished work to do with the story of Abraham and Sarah. Particularly, there's that last uh, account uh, in Genesis 22 that's particularly confusing that I want to say some words about. And in Genesis 22, we encounter the story uh, that's called the binding of Isaac, or sometimes it's called the testing of Abraham. In the Jewish tradition, it's called the Akedah, and Akedah is the Jewish word simply for binding, and binding is what Abraham does to Isaac. He binds him up before he presents him as an offering. How familiar is this story to many of you, the binding of Isaac or the testing of Abraham? So some of you have some familiarity with it. What I want to do is just quickly recap what happened, and I think as I do so, uh, it'll jar some memories, I suspect. Um, and then I want to ask the question of what is this story about? Or maybe what are we supposed to do with this confusing story? So it goes something like this. God decides to test Abraham, this man of great faith to whom he has already promised to be a great, uh, the, the father of a great nation and a great people. God decides to test Abraham's faith. And so he tells him to take his son. Now remember, Isaac is already born, his only son, his only true son by Sarah. He asks him to take that son and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. That is, to put it plainly, to kill him. God asked him this, a very, very, very strange request, to be sure. So the next morning, after getting this command from God, Abraham gets up early, he saddles his donkey, he takes a few servants with him, and he also takes his son Isaac, and off they go to the mountain to where God called them. They, they travel for three days, and on the way there's not much conversation. But at one point, and this is a heartbreaking moment in this story, at one point, Isaac asks his dad, he says, look, we've got the wood, We've got the fire. Where's the offering? Isaac knows they're going to make a sacrifice, but he doesn't yet know that it's him that's going to be sacrificed. So he asks his dad, where's the sacrifice, dad? And here's how uh, Abraham responds. He says, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, that's not exactly 100% true, right? Abraham knows what the offering is actually going to be. There's actually, uh, in Hebrew, this story would have been originally written in Hebrew, uh, and as our good Hebrew students in the room, like Sarah Smith knows, Hebrew doesn't have punctuation. So this comma right here is interpretation. So the way that the, uh, the English translators here have understood the story, they say, well, here's what Abraham says, the lamb, uh, God, will, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, 
my son, that is, the last words are just addressing who he's talking to. But remember, that comma's interpretive. And I want to suggest there's another way to read this. What if that comma weren't a comma, but were a colon? God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. What does that mean? It means that he's going to be the burnt offering. So maybe Abraham is being more straightforward than we typically give him credit for, according to the English translation. In either case, they go on, they, they reach the mountain, and, uh, and, and he, uh, Abraham sets up an altar, he piles up the wood, um, and uh, he puts Isaac on top of the altar, he lifts up his knife, he's ready to kill the son in obedience to what God has said, and then at the very last moment, an angel of the Lord appears and says, Abraham, Abraham, don't touch that kid. That last part is my translation. Uh, and so Abraham, uh, he stops with the knife, um, and uh, he sees a ram in the thicket, and he slaughters the ram in place of the son. So Abraham doesn't actually carry out the sacrifice, right? Isaac survives. The ram instead is caught and captured and killed. And then at the very end, Abraham calls that place, that mountain, uh, Yahweh Yirah, the Lord will provide, meaning that the Lord provided this ram in place of his son. That's the story. It's only 14 verses, 19 if you go to the very, very end. It's one of the densest short stories in all of history. There's so much going on here in just a, a very few verses. But what I wonder, and I want to wonder with you, is what is this story about? What are we supposed to learn? What's the lesson? What's the takeaway? What, what's the, what, what is this supposed to teach us? Obedience. obedience. So in that case, Abraham's obedience. Okay, obedience. What else? Trust in God because God in the end provided the ram. I have read that it was to tell people no more human sacrifice. Ah, so maybe this is an origin story. Here's why the Israelites no longer sacrifice humans. Other nations do. The Bible talks about that, actually, that other nations routinely sacrifice kids to gods. But here's why Israel's different. Let me tell you a story. There once was a time when Abraham was called, anyway, you get the sense. So it could be that as well. That's a great insight. Bill. God provided ah, so there's a, there might read this allegorically or kind of it's foreshadowing of something else that God will provide as a sacrifice in place of another offering. Yeah, please, Adrian. Why did he wait to the last minute? I mean, it makes for a better story, perhaps. Um, it, it, it pushes to the surface the testing of Abraham's faith, but I don't know is the real answer. I mean, it's both what is fascinating about this tale, it's what makes it such a good short story, but it's also what's so confusing about it, because what is this, how does this characterize God? This puts God in a weird place. God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son. I just can't even imagine what that would be like. I have one son, an only son, and if somehow I sense God calling me to sacrifice, I mean, it's, it's not, there's no way I could connect those dots. It would be completely unmeaningful to me in terms of who I understand God to be. And that's what's so incredible about this story, for lack of a better term. And, and I just want to, I bring this up because there, Christian and Jewish readers throughout the ages have really wrestled and have been confounded by this story. They really don't know what to make of it. And I want to suggest five uh, possibilities that pop up in history, some of which you've already named. None of these is decisive. That is to say that that, that, that there are various different perspectives that might validate each of these conclusions. 
Now, the one conclusion, the, uh, probably the most obvious one, is that this is a story about the testing of Abraham's faith. This is a story that illustrates how faithful Abraham was. In fact, this seems to be the, the conclusion that's implied by the last words of the angel after he has told Abraham not to sacrifice his son. The angel says, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, that is, because you were willing to sacrifice your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. So this seems to put a very fine point on it. It seems to be very clear that this is a story about Abraham's faithfulness. But, here's what the, but this conclusion is odd for me for two reasons. One, back in Genesis 12, there's no condition put upon Abraham in order to receive God's blessing. God simply says, go, and I will bless you. Abraham has already went. Abraham already has fulfilled his part of the bargain. This seems to imply, though, that the blessing is contingent on Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son. That seems to me a bit incompatible with what we learn in Genesis 12. So I'm not fully persuaded by that. The second oddity is uh, Abraham is mentioned in Hebrews 11, this text that, that in the New Testament that, that's often called the Hall of Faith because it praises these ancient figures from the Old Testament for their faithfulness. And Hebrews 11 gives the most space out of all the figures, even Moses, Genesis, or excuse me, Hebrews 11 gives the most space to Abraham and praises his faithfulness. Guess what Hebrews 11 never mentions? This story. Abraham gets praised for his faithfulness for every reason but this story. So it's odd to me if the lesson was supposed to be obviously that this is a story of Abraham's faithfulness, why didn't the author of Hebrews bring our attention to that? So it's a possibility, but I'm not fully persuaded. Now here's another possibility. Instead of being a story about Abraham's faithfulness, could this be a story about Isaac's faithfulness? Now this hinges, of course, on how old we think Isaac is when all of this happens. If, in, in much of the great Renaissance and medieval art, Isaac is presented as a toddler, as a little one. That is, he doesn't have much agency in the story. It's actually a heartbreaking thing to think of this dad bringing this little one up for sacrifice. Isaac doesn't have a choice. And here in this Titian painting, you see a great example of that. But if you read uh, Genesis 21 and 22 straightforward, it actually is not so clear that Isaac is a little toddler. In fact, Isaac could be as old as 20 or 30, if you read in a straightforward way those, those chapters. And then that becomes a very different story. There's very few paintings that depict Isaac as a, as a grown man. This one does. But if, it, if Isaac is a grown man, then he could have resisted his father. Remember, his father was about 120 years old at this point. So presumably, a 20-year-old man could have, could have maybe uh, had some resistance to the father. Uh, so if, if, if this is the case, if in fact Isaac is older, then maybe this is a story about Isaac's willingness to be sacrificed. Perhaps. A third possibility uh, that Alice already mentioned um, is that maybe this is an origin story about why ancient Israel has rejected child sacrifice. That is, they used to be like all the other nations who sacrificed their kids, but this is the beginning of why Israel no longer does that. You can imagine sitting around the campfire and some kid asking his dad, well, why is it, Daddy, that we don't sacrifice kids or something like that? And then this story gets told. That's a weird campfire. That would be an odd thing to ask. Um, but nevertheless, you might imagine some sort of dialogue that, that goes something like that. A fourth reason 
uh, many readers, Jewish and Christian alike, have tried to read this story allegorically. That is to say that this story is about Abraham and Isaac, but it's also about something else. These are, these are, these are symbolic figures for, for other ways we can imagine uh, a willingness to sacrifice. And one way that's very likely the case historically is to read Isaac as Israel. Now this story, Genesis 22, likely would have been written in the end of the 8th century CE. And at that time, Israel was under great threat from the advance of the Assyrian Empire. They were at the verge of being taken over as a kingdom. So maybe, maybe this story was written and it was supposed to be read as a story of Israel. That Israel was Isaac. Israel felt that it was about to be sacrificed to this, this terrible and great nation of Assyria. And maybe the story was supposed to inspire hope in the Israelites. Because maybe they were supposed to believe that they, like Isaac, in the end would be spared by God. That maybe they wouldn't be sacrificed in the way they imagined themselves being under threat by Assyria. So it's kind of a historical reading, but in that case, Israel is the Isaac. Of course, there's a Christological reading that was mentioned where Jesus is Isaac. Where Jesus is Isaac. Uh, in this case, you can probably sense the, the resonances. Uh, Abraham puts wood on the back of Isaac, and at least in the Gospel of John, we know that Jesus carries the wood of the cross to the sacrifice. Uh, in this case, Jesus is that sacrificial figure much like Isaac is a sacrificial figure. The New Testament doesn't speak of Jesus in this way, but in another epistle, an epistle that would have circulated at about the time of Jesus but didn't make it into the New Testament, called the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, it makes this, this letter makes this connection explicit, uh, where Abraham is the loving father who sacrificed his son, just as God the Father was the loving father who sacrificed his son. So these are possibilities to kind of read this foreshadowing into the New Testament. Uh, the final one I'll mention, and this is not by any means an exhaustive list, but in, in rabbinic or Jewish interpretation, there are many, many different ways that this story gets understood and read. And I want to just give you one example because it's representative of the type of thing that happens in Jewish interpretation. In, Jewish, in ancient Jewish interpretation, one of the things that happened was the, they would notice an oddity about the story and then would kind of think, well, why is that? How do we explain that odd part of the story? And one of the things they picked up on in this very, very short story is that opening line in 22.2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And the Jewish reader said, gosh, that's pretty repetitive, isn't it? Why didn't God just say, take Isaac, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and, and, the, and the, uh, the Jewish readers wondered, well, what's going on here? And one of their solutions was that actually there was a dialogue, a lengthy dialogue between God and Abraham at this point in the story. But what the biblical version only captures is God's part of the story. So here's what they imagine. God says, uh, take your son. And Abraham says, I have two sons. I have Ishmael, that's a son, and I have Isaac. Which son do I take? And then God says, your only son, Abraham. And Abraham says, well, I have an only son by Sarah, and I have an only son by Hagar. Which only son should I take? And then God says, the son whom you love, Abraham. And, God's, and, uh, and Abraham says, I love them both. And in fact, Scripture says that he loves them both. And then finally God says, even Isaac. And Abraham says, okay, I'll go. 
Now, the biblical account, of course, doesn't preserve this dialogue, but this is how, the, in, in many ways, the rabbinic imagination works as it kind of reads through this story and tries to understand what was actually happening. So there's much more to say, of course, about the binding of Isaac. Uh, it's a complicated tale. It's a confusing tale, but it's very, uh, in some ways, representative of the type of story we encounter in the pages of the Old Testament. Any questions on, on that story before we move on to Hagar and Ishmael? all sufficiently opaque to, to not permit any sort of question. Good, okay. Well, let's move on to uh, Hagar and Ishmael. If you're here at the 9 a.m. worship service, you know that Tony preaches on part of this story, and we actually talked a little bit about uh, the content and how it would work together. So you're going to hear a few points of overlap, and that was uh, intentional. But I'm also going to kind of uh, go in a slightly different direction than he does uh, by, by nature of this study. So here's what I want to do. I want to simply, again, recap the story. Tony preaches from Genesis 21, 8 through 21, and that's one account of the Hagar and Ishmael story. But there's another account of that story. A slightly earlier version of that story occurs in Genesis 16. And here we kind of see similar dynamics at play, but again, it's in an earlier time of the story. So let's go back and recap the story, figure out who these characters are, and begin to think about what unfolds. How, how does the drama work in this story? Now, just to remember, um, you all know who Abraham and Sarah are, right? Uh, Sarah's Abraham's wife, and these two are the recipients of the promise going all the way back to Genesis 12. And that whole promise hinged on Abraham and Sarah being the parents of a great nation. That is, a parents of, with many, uh, that would have many, many kids, and that those kids would have many, many kids. But what's the major drama of the story of Genesis? What's the major problem or threat to that, to that promise? They're barren. When God first gives the promise, Abraham, I think, is 75. Sarah is 66. So they're kind of past childbearing ages. And they've always been infertile. So this idea that they were going to somehow give birth to many descendants would have sounded absolutely ludicrous to Abraham and Sarah. And much of the drama that ensues is kind of how they try to make sense of this promise that they would be parents to many, many kids when they were already past childbearing years. Uh, so that's kind of the backdrop of the story. And, and what happens uh, is that Sarah and Abraham often, more often than we like to admit, come up with kind of workarounds to the problem. They don't just think, okay, God's going to come through on this promise. We don't know how. It doesn't make sense, but God's going to do it. Abraham and Sarah actually, in some ways that are very unfaithful, think, how do we solve this problem ourselves? God can't do it. So how do we make it work out? And, it, and at the beginning of the first episode, which is Genesis 16, we see how they think about doing this. Now Sarai, remember Sarai was just Sarah's name before her name gets changed, Abraham's wife, bore him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Note how Sarah places the blame on God. Not only has God given us this promise that can't be fulfilled, but he's the one in the first place who prevented me from having a kid. That the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go into my slave girl, that is Hagar. Uh, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. What's happening here? This sounds very, very strange to us. It's as if Sarah is setting up an alternative arranged marriage for Abraham and Hagar. That's what it means when it says, uh, 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 
go into my slave girl. That is, it means take her as a secondary wife. Um, sleep with her. Have a child through her. And maybe that child, maybe that's the way God's going to deliver the promise. Is this not a child through me, Sarah speaking, but a child through my slave girl? This sounds incredibly weird to us that you would make this sort of arrangement, right? Or maybe I shouldn't assume that it sounds incredibly weird to us. It sounds incredibly weird to me uh, in, in most modern families. I would not recommend this as kind of marriage advice, counseling sort of thing. Uh, but actually, in the ancient Near Eastern world, this wasn't altogether uncommon. So the ancient Israelite leader would have heard this and would have thought like, yeah, that's what you do. This is, this is how you treat infertility in the ancient world. You don't go to an infertility doctor uh, or anything like that. Um, you don't even adopt, really. This is how you solve the problem. You give your husband some other woman, and then that kid kind of becomes your kid uh, in this secondary fashion. So it's odd to us, but for an ancient Israelite reader, it's not so odd, or at least the whole scheme. Um, but that's, not the, that's only part of the issue. From here, the drama increases. So... Uh, here's what happens next. So Abraham goes into Hagar. He goes into Hagar. She conceives, so she's actually very fertile. She has a, uh, it, it's, uh, uh, conceives, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now here's where the story begins to get complicated. She looked with contempt on her mistress. Now there are a lot of pronouns in there. Who's looking on whom with contempt? Is it Hagar who's looking with contempt on her, that is, Hagar's mistress, Sarah, or is it Sarah looking with contempt on Hagar? What do y'all think? I think in this verse, it's saying that Hagar is looking at contempt because look at me, I have a child. That's right. Yeah. So, and you almost would expect it to be the opposite. You would almost expect it to be Sarah who looks with contempt on Hagar, maybe out of jealousy. Like she's, she's, even though Sarah kind of cooked up this scheme, she's now resentful that it's Hagar who gets to have a child with Abraham. But actually, the way the grammar works, it's, it's very clear that it's, um, that it's Hagar who's looking with contempt. And that's in part because the word mistress here in Hebrew, uh, gibberah, is always used in reference to a, a woman in superior position. So her mistress must be someone in superior position to the slave girl, Hagar. Now, why would Hagar look with contempt on Sarah? How does that make sense? Well, uh, perhaps she knew that despite bearing a son, he would always have secondary status. So maybe Hagar is aware of the fact that though she's in this position, she's never going to be Abraham's favorite. She's never going to be the primary wife. Her son is never going to be the primary son. And so maybe from an early, uh, early on in this story, Hagar is, is, is looking with contempt on Sarah, knowing that there's always going to be this inequality. But there's, a, there's another possibility, and that's the, that's the reading you typically get uh, in a commentary. But I want to suggest another possibility. In Hebrew, this phrase, she looked with contempt on her mistress, more literally means her mistress was lowered in her eyes. Her mistress was lowered. Maybe as a result of this scenario, kind of the esteem that Sarah had was lessened in the eyes of Hagar. Maybe, maybe Hagar knew that Sarah was not trusting in God's promises. Maybe Hagar knew that this was not the way truly 
to get the son that God would bless. Maybe for Hagar, Sarah was a woman of great faith, was a hero of faith, and this act lessened what Hagar thought of Sarah. That's actually how the Hebrew reads uh, more literally. I, don't, I can't prove that that's the case, but it's, it, it's another way of thinking about this Hagar and Ishmael story. In either case, what happens next, um, or Sarah reacts strongly. Sarah says to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. So Hagar, or Sarah begins by blaming Abraham, and the language here is quite strong. The word for wrong is actually the word Hamas. And you know Hamas, it means violence, because you know of certain military, paramilitary organizations that are named Hamas, meaning violence. So it's not just that Sarah thinks, yeah, you, you made a little mistake here, Abraham. She's actually blaming him for a violence done to her. Now, it's not so clear what Abraham has done wrong, other than following Sarah's instructions. But Sarah is certainly directing some of her, her frustration at Abraham. But, but she doesn't stop there. Then she directs her anger against Hagar. Then Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar, and she, Hagar, ran away from her into the wilderness. The word dealt harshly here uh, in Hebrew, uh, where is it? Here. The word dealt harshly here in Hebrew uh, is the same word that's used in the Exodus account to describe how the Egyptians treated the Israelites. But there it's translated as oppressed. It's the language of oppression. But now it's Sarah treating Hagar that way, not an Egyptian treating an Israelite that way. Or you might even think of it as a reverse. Right here you have an Israelite, Sarah, treating an Egyptian, Hagar, uh, harshly. In the Exodus story, it's the Egyptian who treats the Israelite harshly. I'll come back to that point in just a moment. So what happens? Hagar gets driven out. Remember, she's just pregnant. The boy is not born yet. Hagar gets driven out into the wilderness. We don't know her destination. Presumably, she's on her way back to Egypt for safety. But there in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar. And this is the first time that the angel of the Lord has appeared to any human in all of the Bible. Hagar is the first one to experience the angel of the Lord. Uh, and the angel of the Lord there uh, reiterates or gives her a promise. The angel says, uh, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. So think of this promise. Hagar thinks she's been discarded in the wilderness probably to die. And the angel comes along. The angel of the Lord comes along and says, no, no, no. You're not only going to have this kid, but your descendants uh, will be so great that they cannot be numbered. What does this promise sound like? Does this language sound familiar? It, this is very intentionally echoes the promise God gives to Abraham and Sarah. Now God is giving a similar promise to Hagar. So God intervenes here into a heartbreaking moment and offers reassurance to this woman cast out into the wilderness. Um, Hagar then, at the end of the story, names God. It's actually a very interesting passage. So, so uh, uh, Hagar named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roi, for she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Now, what's interesting about this passage, it doesn't, it doesn't say that Hagar called on the name of God. It says that Hagar named God. This is the only character in all of scripture who names God. Moses receives the name of God, 
But Hagar is the only one who actually names God. And he calls, or she calls him El-Roi. And El-Roi in Hebrew means uh, God of my seeing. And we can read that phrase one of two ways. We can, we can either read God of my seeing as Hagar thinking, I've seen God and I've survived. This is incredible. This is amazing. There's a tradition in the ancient world that you couldn't look upon God and live. Um, and so Hagar is amazed here. She's saying, I've looked upon God, God of my seeing, and I've survived. Or we could read it as God of my seeing, that is, God has seen me. And that also would make sense of the story, too, because there Hagar is, driven out into the wilderness, and God discovers her. Either way, the ending of, of Genesis 16 implies a unique relationship between Hagar and God. Now, that's the end of the first episode. The second episode occurs in Genesis 21. It has a lot of similarities in theme with the episode we just encountered. Some scholars have actually speculated that there are actually just two different variations of the same story, that there were two different authors here. They both knew of a Hagar and Ishmael story, and they told that story in slightly different ways, one way in Genesis 16 and the other way in Genesis 21. That might be the case, but it's certainly possible that you could read these stories in sequence. That is, that there were two episodes involving Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 16 is the earlier one. Genesis 21 is the later one. And that would make sense because in Genesis 21, Isaac has already been born. So this is a later, or Ishmael has already been born, first of all. But then Isaac has also already been born. So this is a number of years later that things have happened, okay? And what happened in the intervening years is that after the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar in the wilderness, she goes back to Sarah and Abraham. She goes back to their house. We don't know what happened when she went back, but presumably that's where she had Ishmael. That's where Ishmael began to grow up. And that's what was happening as this story begins. So uh, the kids are young, uh, although I'll come back to that in a second. And uh, we read this. Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, that is uh, Ishmael, to be clear about who they're talking about, playing with her son Isaac. Tony uh, commented on this phrase. This is something Tony and I talked about. And I'm gonna, I'll recap what he said and add a, a small piece to it. So Sarah sees uh, the son born to uh, Hagar playing with her son Isaac. So she, Sarah, said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit with my son, Isaac. So this is round two of conflict between Sarah, Hagar, Abraham, and Ishmael. And there's a couple of things to note here. One, it seems in this passage that Sarah, in her contentment, couldn't even bring herself to utter the word Ishmael. Look at how she goes out of her way. It's always the son of the Egyptian, the son of Hagar, the son of the slave woman. She never mentions Ishmael's name. It's as if her, her jealousy or her, her discomfort with having him around is so strong that she can't even name him. And yet, every time she names her son, Isaac. My son, Isaac. My son, Isaac. As opposed to the son of a slave woman. The son of a Hagar. Right? So there's deep, deep rift here in Sarah's mind. The second thing to mention, and this is what Tony brought out, I thought, very nicely in his sermon, was, uh, was why. Why is Sarah upset when she sees Ishmael playing with her son 
Isaac. And there's a couple possibilities here. Uh, the word for playing um, has, can have some connotations of kind of making fun of, of mockery or, or jesting at. And so maybe if we read that understanding of that word in Hebrew, maybe we kind of get Sarah's feeling, right? She, she sees this kid, Ishmael, making fun of or mocking or maybe bullying or something like that, her son. And I think as a parent, man, if I saw some kid, especially an older kid, bullying my son on the playground, I mean, I, I mean it would be, you know what it triggers in you when, when you would see that happening. So that part of it, I get at some level. If that indeed is the case, the problem with that is that the Hebrew word that gets translated playing more often means playing, something fun, not something mean-spirited, although that is possible according to the Hebrew. I have another, there's another thing I want to suggest, um, and this is where um, I'm going to add something to, to a point that Tony makes. The word for playing, tatzhak, is the same root, and Tony brought this out, it's the same root of the word laughter. Remember last week when Sarah laughs, and actually Abraham also laughs? It's the same exact word in Hebrew. Okay, so there might be some play on that earlier encounter. But what's particularly interesting in the Hebrew is that this part here, with her son Isaac, is not there in the Hebrew. All the Hebrew says is, she saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian playing. It doesn't say playing with her son Isaac. It just says he saw Ishmael playing. Now that kind of rules out the possibility that, that somehow he was mocking or making fun of, it, of Isaac, because this part of this text isn't there. So what could it mean? Why would that get Sarah upset just to see Ishmael playing? Well, remembering that this root for playing is the same root as the word for Isaac, I have a suggestion. I wonder if what Sarah saw was Isaac, or excuse me, Ishmael playing Isaac. That is to say, playing the role of Isaac acting like the only son, acting like the son who would receive the inheritance, acting like the true biological son of Sarah and Abraham. And maybe when Hagar saw, or excuse me, Sarah saw Ishmael playing, or Isaacing, you might say, she worried that he was taking the place of her son, that he somehow would displace Isaac as the first son as the real son, as the true Isaac. And so it's for this reason then that she drives Ishmael and Hagar away. Just a possibility, uh, but it might help explain why this part of the story isn't there. In either case, um, uh, once again, Hagar is driven out into the wilderness, this time with her son. She's only given some bread and a skin of water. And from here, a heartbreaking scene ensues. Her, the provisions soon run out. Hagar casts the child under a bush, then sits away off, and she assumes the child is going to die. So Hagar is at the end of her rope. The child, without food and water, she abandons the kid, and, and she, does, uh, she feels powerless to preserve the life of her son. And in this situation, Hagar does the only thing any mother would do. She wept. She wept. It might call to mind for us Mary at the foot of the cross in John 19 when Jesus was about to utter his final breath. She wept. Fortunately, this was not the end of the story, for once again, God intervenes. In Genesis 21, 17, uh, God comes on the scene, and here's what we hear. Uh, and God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? 
do not be afraid, for the God has heard the voice of the boy, of the boy where he is out. Uh, subsequently, God provides uh, or makes uh, appear a well of water, and the woman and the child are nourished and saved. So once again, this heartbreaking tale of conflict between Abraham and Sarah on the one hand and uh, Ishmael and Isaac, uh, uh, Hagar on the other ends with God intervening and acting in a gracious way to Hagar and Ishmael. And this ends the story of Hagar and Ishmael, by the way, in the Bible. From here we learn nothing else of Hagar and Ishmael, all through, except for one passing reference in the story of Joseph. We don't learn anything else about these figures. The final word of this story is God's gracious intervention for this discarded son and discarded woman. What do we make of this story? Here I want to start to bring things uh, to a close. What do we make of this? Uh, this is, a, for me at least, this is a troubling portrait of Abraham and Sarah in terms of what they do to these outsiders. Let's look at Sarah first. Um, what of Sarah? What do we make of her? Well, Sarah really comes off, I think, in a negative light. We know, we saw earlier that in, from Genesis 16, that Sarah dealt harshly. That's that word, ana, which describes how the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites. Sarah treats Hagar that very same way. She treats uh, Hagar like the Egyptians would one day treat the Israelites. And I think the biblical narrative invites us to be disturbed by this. This is not behavior befitting of the matriarch of the Jewish people. The, uh, sometimes people, when I bring this up, people wonder, well, wait, what? are you criticizing Scripture, or what are you doing in calling into question these folks? And I, I'm simply trying to point out that the ancient Israelite reader would not have read this story and thought, yay, Sarah and Abraham. They would have been bothered by this. I think Christians want to explain away this story because we somehow have come to believe that if it's in the Bible, it must be a, a good example of behavior. But friends, the Bible teaches by negative example too. The Bible teaches us what not to do by the mistakes of the, of the great figures of faith. And this is one of those examples where we don't say, ah, Sarah is a faithful woman, so we must emulate Sarah. Sarah is not acting like a saint in this story. In fact, the story of Abraham and Sarah is not so much about the faithfulness of these ancient figures of faith. It's about God's faithfulness to them despite the way they mess up. That's the good news of our scripture. Not that we have these great heroes of faith who always get it right, but that we have a God who always sticks with these great figures precisely when they don't get it right. The Israelite reader would have been disturbed by this. Rush? Why isn't Sarah's behavior clearly the fact she was trying to preserve Isaac's inheritance? I, I think she was. I think she did. I think that's the primary motivator for Sarah, that she was trying to preserve Isaac's inheritance. But the, and that's, that's understandable at a human level, right? I think all of this, where I think Sarah gets off track, of course, is that she doesn't trust God's promise from the beginning that God was going to provide a natural son. That was the promise in Genesis 12. Sarah here is trying to, to, to develop a human workaround because, precisely because she didn't trust in God's promise. And I think because she tries that workaround, she runs into all sorts of problems. I think this story is the collateral damage. I don't think Sarah set out to mistreat Hagar, but once she set the, uh, this couple on the course towards this action... I think a lot of complications arise that lead to, to the unfortunate mistreatment of uh, Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, we see this further uh, in the Genesis 21 account. It says that 
uh, Sarah cast out the slave woman with her son. Again, the language is hard. It's even harder in the English because garash in Hebrew um, is the language of, uh, it's, it's not only the language of divorce, but it's also the very thing, it's the very verb that's used in the Genesis 3 account where Adam and Eve get cast out from the garden. It's the same word. So here, kind of, Sarah is casting out these people just like her ancestors, Adam and Eve, were cast out of the garden. So Sarah, it, it's, a tough, it's tough to know what to do with her. Abraham is a little bit more ambiguous, but I don't think he comes off a lot better. It, it seems like he's, uh, he's slightly more sympathetic. Uh, in the first uh, story, it says the matter was... Distra- Sorry, this is the second episode in Genesis 21. It says that the matter was distressing to Abraham. So at least Abraham was a little bit bothered by what was going on. But if you keep reading, the very next words after this, the matter was distressing to Abraham on account of his son. So even here, Abraham only cares about Ishmael and doesn't seem to be at all uh, concerned about what happens to Hagar. So it's a little bit better for Abraham, but not a lot better. And throughout, Abraham, in my opinion, is rather passive. He doesn't do much to intervene. Where is that Abraham who intervenes and ask God not to bring destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. Where is that Abraham who stands up and says, God, this isn't right. Change it. That Abraham is silent in this text. So he might not be as uh, active in the mistreatment, but he's certainly complicit in what happens. So what do we do with a text like this? What do we do? As some of you know, um, who took uh, a Theology Matters course here back in the fall, called Text of Terror. I actually dealt with this, uh, with this story in that class. And I, speculate, I called it a text of terror because in some ways this story, or in many ways, this story brings up for us disturbing questions. What's God doing here? Where is God in all this action? Where are the great heroes of our faith? Uh, in this story, we find Hagar as a, as a faithful maid exploited, as a servant mistreated by her mistress, as a pregnant woman without support as a mother and child on the verge of death, and as a refugee without legal recourse. This is a disturbing tale that we find in a scripture that we call holy and sacred. And one of the questions I raise in that Theology Matters course, which I also teach at Columbia Seminary as a full master's level course called Text of Terror, is is I wonder with students, how do we respond? This is our scripture. This is in our canon. How do we respond faithfully? And two of the ways I suggest, and I'm going to end this on this, Two of the ways I suggest that we encounter texts of terror, whether it's this one or stories about violence in Joshua or whatever else it is in Scripture that we find disturbing, two strategies are this. One, read this story or any other text of terror in conversation with other stories in Scripture. Because many times there are other narratives in Scripture that help balance out or help shed new light on this story. And one kind of reading partner that I want to suggest for this story is the scene where the angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she's going to give birth to a child. And the parallels, actually, between what happened with Hagar and what happened with Mary are really remarkable. In both cases, both stories feature an endangered woman in a precarious situation. Hagar has already been abandoned and driven out. And if you remember in the story of Mary and Joseph, when they discover that Mary's with child and they're not married, what's going to happen next to Mary? She's going to be driven out. 
into the wilderness as well. So the situation of Mary and Hagar is very similar. The words the angel announces are very similar. In Genesis 16, we read, The angel of the Lord said to her, Hagar, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son, you shall call him Ishmael. In Luke, we hear, The angel Gabriel said to Mary, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. It's almost a verbatim passage. Ishmael means God will hear, and Jesus means God will save. So even in both ways, both kids have these symbolic names about God's future action. And in both cases, the women, Hagar and Mary, trust in God. God calls the Lord God of my seeing, for God had looked upon her situation with mercy. And Mary utters the Magnificat. Uh, Mary's soul magnifies the Lord for what he had done. So there are all of these parallels. And for me, the takeaway is that God, just as God was on the side of Mary, so too is God on the side of Hagar. God stands with and for women in this situation of abandonment and maybe even abuse. I think canonically we're supposed to hear those resonances between the story of Hagar and the story of Mary. So that's one way we might respond. The other, and this, I'll get you out of here on this, is that one thing that I think texts of terror are meant to do is that I think they're meant to be shocking. When we read about violence and holy war and in stories of abandonment and exclusion, I think we as Christian readers are, are meant to be scandalized in a certain way. That's the point of these stories. And the reason they do that is to somehow resensitize us to the terrors that are in our own world, to kind of remind us that, that as much as these stories bother us, there is violence in our world that we should be bothered by. There are Hagars and Ishmael in our city and in our world. And if we're going to be bothered by the biblical texts that tell of these stories, we should be bothered by what's happening in our city and in this world. There are Hagars and Ishmaels. There, there, are, uh, there are mothers driven out and abandoned, right? There are pregnant women who are left on their own. There are, there are divorced mothers with children. There are stepsons or step, stepdaughters who never feel quite as loved or accepted as the biological kid. There are resident aliens without legal recourse. There are all of these things and many more that would find resonance with how Hagar and Ishmael is treated. So for me, I read this story as a Christian, as an invitation to care about the Hagars and Ishmaels in our midst. Not to celebrate Sarah and Abraham so much, but rather to see God's compassion for Hagar and Ishmael and to embody that compassion for the Hagars and Ishmaels in our community. Thank you very much.